Satanic Matrix Awareness, this is Matthew, and I'm um, reading from a concise history of the common law. This is part eight. I'm on Montesquieu. The most tremendous event in the 18th century was the French Revolution, with which it closed. A few words must be said here of its implications in legal and political science. These can best be illustrated by considering two great thinkers, Montesquieu, who just preceded it, and Burke, who was contemporary with it. In 1748, Montesquieu published his Esprit des Lois, which, like his earlier essays, was an attempt to give a political interpretation to history. The sources he used were Roman and more particularly English history. He classified the different forms of government and assigned to each its characteristic principle. Thus, despotism depends upon fear, monarchy upon honor, aristocracy upon moderation, and democracy upon virtue. In the Roman sense of the word, the corruption and fall of a government whereby it changes into another form he attributes to the corruption of its fundamental principle. But as long as the principle remains fairly pure, he sees little to choose between the different possible forms. The really vicious situation is when institutions which are fitted for one principle of government are still forced to work, although that principle has been replaced by another. Montesquieu tells us little about sovereignty. Although he has a good deal to say about liberty, he regards liberty as best assured by the supremacy of law rather than of men, and to achieve this the best way, in his opinion, was the separation of powers. This part of his work is greatly indebted to John Locke. The aspect which he develops at most length is not the mere administrative convenience of specializing the functions of government, but rather the constitutional safeguards which result when each power operates as a check upon the others. It is this system of checks and balances, balances with Montesquieu regards as particularly important and as the secret of constitutional monarchy in England. It was he who had the romantic notion that English constitutionalism was directly derived from the ancient Germans of Tacticus. Se beau systeme et trouve dans les bois. He even went so far as to develop a theory of the influence of geography upon politics. He is essentially modern in the emphasis which he places upon legislation, but it is his theory of separation of powers and his insistence upon its value as affording constitutional safeguards which are most important for our purposes. For he was read by influential men in America and has had a marked influence upon constitutional development in that country. Into Edmund Burke, into the causes and character of the French Revolution, we cannot enter but some of its results upon English political thought may well be mentioned. The greatest political thinker at this time in England was Edmund Burke.
and anyone who wishes to have a summary of English political wisdom by an experienced statesman who could adopt a philosophical attitude without losing touch with practical events must read the writings and speeches of Burke. They are likely to remain for a long time an authoritative statement of the results which had been achieved by parliamentary government in the 17th and 18th century. At the present day, his words are constantly upon the lips of the best English statesmen. His thought is characterized by his intimate contact with practical politics. Rarely does he allow a theory to divert his attention from the practical problems of everyday government. A noteworthy portion of his work is an answer to Rousseau and to the theories of the rights of man, with a natural tendency to admire aristocracy. He felt that an extreme democracy, as suggested by some theorists, contained great dangers, and insisted that it was hazardous to abandon those sentiments for aristocracy, which in his days seemed natural to mankind. He observes that a democracy is not affected by the fear which besets a monarch, when shameless acts are done, the moral responsibility vanishes. When spread among numerous persons, while the alleged liberty of a democracy is more often a delusion, the horrors with which the revolution began made an increasing impression upon Burke as upon his countrymen and had the practical effect of delaying reform for over a generation. Typical measures of this period were the Treasonable Practices Act and the Seditious Meetings Act of 1795, the suspension of Habeas Corpus Act on several occasions, and the imposition of heavy stamp duties with the object of checking the circulation of cheap newspapers. Numerous state trials took place, even purely private law, fell under the influence of the extreme conservative reaction of which Lord Ellenborough was the personification in the King's Bench, 1802 to 1818, and Lord Eldon in Chancery, 1801 to 1806, at a moment when the wildest theories were being proclaimed in all seriousness. His speeches on America are the best expression of his philosophy, for they were made before the French Revolution came to strike terror throughout the rest of Europe. There, in particular, the political realism of Burke is apparent. He, almost alone of British statesmen at the moment, was prepared to face the facts and having done so, to advocate a frank acknowledgement of the situation as it actually existed. He poured ridicule upon the government for their weak attempts to compel recognition of a principle which had no relation to the existing state of affairs. He was the embodiment of the spirit of compromise and appreciated fully the fact that situations slowly change and that the change must be recognized frankly. He was prepared to state that the American colonies had entered upon the stage of adult political life, 
and to counsel the government to treat them accordingly. Perhaps the most interesting passages in his speeches on America are those where he shows that the demands of the colonists were the very same which Englishmen at home had made in a more heroic age, and where he stresses the deep respect for legality which characterized English political development, urging that his very spirit lay at the root of the American case. Chapter 9. The 19th Century Liberalism and Reform At length, the end of the Napoleonic War brought some relief from the political tension and a wave of constitutional and legal reform swept away many ancient institutions which had long survived their usefulness, the need for reform. The state of the law at the beginning of the 19th century has been thus described by an eminent legal historian. Heartbreaking delays and ruinous costs were the lot of suitors. Justice was dilatory, expensive, uncertain, and remote. To the rich, it was a costly lottery. To the poor, a denial of right or certain ruin. The class who profited most by its dark mysteries were the lawyers themselves. A suitor might be reduced to beggary or madness, but his advisors reveled in the chicane and artifice of a long, lifelong suit and grew rich. Out of multiplicity of forms and processes arose num numberless fees and well-paid offices. Many subordinate functionaries holding sinecure or superfluous appointments enjoyed greater emoluments than the judges of the court. And upon the luckless suitors again fell the charge of these aggregate egregious establishments. If complaints were made, they were repelled as the promptings of ignorance. If amendments of the law were proposed, they were resisted as innovations. To question the perfection of English jurisprudence was to doubt the wisdom of our ancestors, a political heresy which could expect no toleration. The romantic fancy which led Blackstone to tolerate such a system, comparing it to picturesque old Gothic castle, could hardly survive the shocks of war, and a very different point of view ushered in the great reform movement. Jeremy Bentham. The prophet of the new era was Jeremy Bentham from 1748 to 1832. At Oxford, Bentham had heard Blackstone lecture and deemed his matter unsound. As a young law student, he had listened with the admiration to the, to the judgments of Lord Mansfield. The publication of Blackstone's Commentary, 1776, stirred him to fierce criticism, expressed in his Fragment on Government, 1776, and he abandoned the professional study of law in order to devote himself to the basic principles upon which law rests, the principles of morals and legislation, 1789, proclaimed that there should be constant radical legislation at the mainspring of law, and it should be directed to the end of securing the greatest happiness of the greatest number.
His faith in acts of parliament was perhaps a little overstated. The century since his death has revealed some of the limitations in written constitutions and legislative enactments. But nevertheless, the main position still stands. Rules and institutions must henceforth submit to the test of utility and be judged by their fruits. And where reform is necessary, it must be affected in most instances by deliberate planned legislation. Besides providing a theoretical basis for criticizing the law and the Constitution, he also entered into detailed and vigorous discussion of practical details, as in the rationale of judicial evidence. Excuse me. He was a firm believer in codes and ever ready to offer advice. In 1811, he offered to codify the law of the United States. The offer was not accepted, and even Pennsylvania, which for a moment seemed tempted by it, finally yielded to the professional interest of the lawyers. Nevertheless, Bentham's influence has been enormous and has become much more diffused in his writings. Many people act on his principles who have never read a word that he wrote, and a great deal of what he wrote is barely readable. So torturous did his style become, it has well been said that his doctrines have become so far part of the common thought of the time that there is hardly an educated man who does not accept as too clear for argument truths which were invisible till Bentham pointed them out. Even some of the strange new words he invented have become familiar, international, utilitarian, and codification. From Bentham's day to our own long, long line of measures has approached nearer and nearer to his idea of utility. Reducing law from the position of semi-religious mysticism to that of a practical branch of the business of government with expediency as its guiding principle. At the head of this movement comes the Great Reform Act of 1832, which brought Parliament into direct contact with public opinion, and thereby subjected law to, to the pressure of the same force. Three years later, the Municipal Corporations Act, 1835, abolished those curious and venerable monuments of the Middle Ages and substituted a uniform pattern of town government. It would be hard to imagine a more spectacular break with the past than these two statutes. They were accompanied by scores of others which abolished the accumulated survivals of centuries. On the procedural side came the Uniformity of Process Act, 1832, and the Civil Procedure Act of 1833, which buried a great deal of subtle learning and abolished some hoary antiquities, such as wager of law. A group of statutes from 1827 to 1837 made numerous changes in the criminal law and greatly reduced the number of capital offenses. This, in fact, was the one subject on which the 18th century had legislated incessantly and vigorously. Statutory interference with the penal law was therefore no novelty. The real change was in the spirit. Sir Robert Peel and 
Lord Bruham were the promoters of these reforms for which Sir Samuel Romilly and Sir James McIntosh had long struggled in the face of bitter opposition, and Peel in particular made the capital contribution of setting up a professional police force. Devil Spirits thus rendering the criminal law less savage, but more certain in its operation. The law of property, no less far-reaching reforms were made. One single year, 1833, saw the Fines and Recoveries Act, uh, the Administration of Estates Act, and the Inheritance Act. Interesting. In the law of property, no less far-reaching reforms were made one single year. 1833 saw the Fines and Recoveries Act, the Administration of Estates Act, and the Inheritance Act. Concluding remarks, the end of this chapter therefore brings us from the old world to the new, from the ruins of the Roman Empire to a crisis in another empire 13 centuries later we have seen the gradual formation of the english state under the anglo-saxon kings which later was transformed by the norman genius and furnished with the first necessity of government a financial administration developing within that administration we have seen the germs in the reign of henry ii of the common law while under his sons we begin to find the claim that law and administration had now come to the parting of the ways, and the text of the Great Charter lays down the principle of the supremacy of law. Besides this internal limita limitation upon a powerful monarchy, we also see the Church using considerable influence in politics, and its role expressed in the terms of a general formula, that although the state, like the Church, may enjoy divine sanction, or at least divine tolerance. Nevertheless, religion is superior to politics. It is clearly asserted that there are things which kings cannot do. And in the Middle Ages, there was a papacy powerful enough in many cases to punish monarchs who transgressed. We have seen, too, the growing weakness of law in the 15th century and the rise of the 16th of administrative bodies using semi-legal forms which alone were adequate to meet the crisis under the Yorkists and early Tudors. When this movement had gone too far, the Stuart dynasty was to suffer for its failure to adapt himself to new conditions. Although it is typical of English development that the really innovating party found its main support in history, and even in antiquinarianism with the commonwealth there came a period unique in english history and its failure was as conspicuous the revolution completed the work of the rebellion and expressed its results in a form more nearly legitimate the strange but fascinating theories of hobbes gave way to the re reasonableness of locke and when a century later the French Revolution issued a challenge to all established governments, it was Burke who found an answer which served England and America equally well. That answer was an appeal to history.
to experience and to the traditional English habit of compromise and cautious reform to what Montesquieu might have called the spirit of the common law. The French Revolution, the long and weary war, and the fearful distress that followed the peace came near to bringing disaster. Contemporaries felt themselves on the brink of revolution and civil war. And if this last catastrophe was averted, it may perhaps have been because the party of privilege and conservatism is so clearly founded on securities, founded on sentiment rather than on political theory. There was no clash of philosophies as there had been in the 7th century. Even Benthamism, in spirit of the formidable era of logic, ethics, and jurisprudence, which decorated it, was at bottom a as sound common sense as it was dubious philosophy. Benthamism triumphed in spite of its technical apparatus and became merged in the practical good sense of the common middle class. Avoiding the mysticism of the state as well as the mysticism of the rights of men. Just as the present moment, it seems that the political thought, which is derived from the common law, will again stand aside from the corresponding mysticisms of our own day. Part 2, the courts and the profession. Alright, I'm going to take a break here. And this is uh, part 8, I believe. So next will be part 9. Thanks for listening, Satanic Matrix Awareness. I gotta get some sleep. Uh, I gotta go to work tomorrow at 5.30 in the morning. So I have court next week, February 14th, trying to get visitations back with my daughter after the foster parent um, said false allegations to DCF about me and canceled my visitation rights. So... I do thank you guys for listening to me and hearing me read this book and hearing me share about what's going on. Um, We have a huge problem because uh, millions of Americans are going to jail on a yearly basis from codes and statutes that don't apply to our natural person. They only apply to our legal person, which is a fictitious corporation. So um, this is Admiralty Law. Admiralty Maritime Law is the law of the sea, which is for corporations, uh, commercial uh, merchants. And they are assuming that we are because they trapped us to live in a state rather than to live uh, in a republic and to live on the land. So we don't live in the land. We live on the land. So these are the things. I have a little speech I made up here. For when they talk to me on March 29th in court, I recognize this court as maritime admiralty law. Therefore, I challenge jurisdiction. This case is dismissed on the grounds that statutes cannot apply to a living person. These statutes apply to corporations and government employees. I am neither corporation or government employee. I refuse all offers. I waive all my privileges and reserve all my rights under UCC 1-308. I will not plead in a court of contracts. I invoke common law and demand my property be given to me immediately. That's for 
my family law and for my criminal case. Living Soul, Salvatore Matthew Farina, Executor of the Living Trust. Y'all have a good night.